This is Def C. You are now listening to the Fly Fidelity podcast. Check out my album with Boathouse for all debts, public and private, on closed sessions everywhere you can listen to music. Now, if you like, uh, if you like really good rapping about subjects both serious and not serious, you should definitely check this joint out. Much love to Luke, the Podfather himself, for bringing me on and uh, having a great conversation with me. You are now listening to Fly Fidelity Podcast. First, First I say, say what we're going to do. Then you, then you say, say, I don't know, what do you want to do? What we're going to do, what you want to do? You're going to dig this. The Fly Fidelity Podcast is, is the solution. It's the best. Check it out. You want to get super fly, fly. Details just ahead. Do you love credible content, but, but, but hate how long you have to wait? And who wants super thick and frothy dumpster juice with rat corpses in it? There's a better way. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly. Fly. Fly Fidelity. Fidelity. Fly Fidelity Podcast. Fly Fidelity, baby. Fidelity, baby. Fidelity. With your host, Luke Bailey. going on and welcome to another episode of fly fidelity with your host luke bailey this week we're joined by def c to talk about his acclaimed latest album for all debts public and private on our 50th episode we'll be diving into his writing and recording process working with boathouse arm and hammer and everything between enjoy the conversation Charles Xavier, stage voice, whipping X graduate out of medium grade point. Vengeance for repentance, had us snapping off the lab locks. Comic book color panel palettes, flashback drops, raps ad hoc. Stat talk is just math rock. Pass like the jazz spot, Bird Parker stash hot. Cold train plane level, free note phrasing. Midwest dress code, East Coast cadence. Dripping from the rhyme hands, flex with the pocket switch. Aim like my last name should end in Akavik. Talking out of turn lips, bent with the guy. A twitch, body not a temple, but my head is like a monolith. We were in the studio, 80 bars, no hooks. Smiling at whoever tried breaking dope in my notebook. Room cooking in the distance, still isn't ready yet. So we yelling, get the lead out at these pencil necks. Supreme clientele was my homework. Notepad had a Cuban links worth the cold words. Wanted to rock bubble coats with the faux fur. Won win awards, but I had to beat the cold first. Supreme clientele was my homework. No you describe your latest album as a love letter to your last 15 years making music and those who have believed in you. I wanted to start mm-hmm. with the Young Chicago Authors Program and you mm-hmm. coming up cutting your teeth at open mics. Give me mm-hmm. a sense of that time and energy, honing your craft for anybody who doesn't know overseas in the UK. What was that time like? Uh, so I was, in addition to participating at Young Chicago Authors, a uh, member of an after-school program at my high school that was a spoken word club that was actually run by somebody who had uh, co-founded the Youth Poetry Slam in London, I think back in like the late 90s, early 2000s. 
and he was there. He was, he is, his name's Peter Kahn. He's actually uh, retiring this year. Um, but Peter was a mentor or is a mentor of mine, both as a poet and as a student. And I always kind of saw poetry as a way to Trojan horse rap music into the classroom and into any space that I was in academically that might not have rewarded what it was I did or validated what I what I did if it was classified as rap or hip hop. So uh, when I when Peter brought a flyer in for a class called the Aesthetics of Hip Hop at Young Chicago Authors, I was in all the way. When I went, some of the first music I was shown in those workshops, uh, Respiration by Black Star, Cliche by Typical Cats, it really just blew my mind. Mm. And at that point, there was an open mic called Urban Sandbox that was run by another mentor of mine who was a graduate of that same spoken word poetry program I just mentioned named D. Sully. He ran an open mic called Urban Sandbox uh, the third Thursday of every month. I went to as many of those as I could from the time I was too young to take the train by myself to the time where I was on the train on that third Thursday and able to come back um, by myself. And I was at YCA every Saturday, just kind of honing my craft in a variety of respects as a poet, as a rapper, even took classes in screenwriting and music criticism. And, uh, you know, the open mic scene back then that I was a part of was during a, a kind of strange space in Chicago hip hop history. There was a generation of underground Chicago hip hop that had popped nationally. So groups like Typical Cats, record labels like Galapagos 4 and Mole Men were huge in the underground at the time. They were working with Doom, they were working with Aesop Rock, they were working with Slug, they were working with, uh, I think eventually they were working with Rhymefest and Juice. Uh, they produced MC Juice's, I think that whole first album of his, and if, if not all of it, then most of it. And yeah, they were working with uh, some pretty heavy hitters in the industry as well, who are not from Chicago and were not underground the names are just escaping me at the moment and so the generation that came immediately after that were like my big homies so tomorrow kings lamont manuel that's sketch 185 gyroscope wizard jenkins the great malak l gilead seven those are my mentors and then they kind of brought my generation of chicago hip-hop up under their wing so that's Rich Jones, that's Green Slime, that's Solar Five. Um, and we emerged at a time when, and, and I, I need to give a big shout out as well to my man, Nate Marshall and Jose Olivares, who are two very prominent American poets who were doing spoken word poetry, poetry slams. And Nate in particular was rapping back then and was, and I'm sure still is super nice. And uh, from that point on, you know, we were just kind of rhyming and enciphering for the for the sake of enthusiasm, really. We all kind of loved the same music. This was at a time when 
that could really bond you to somebody in person where I'm in school and I'm having arguments about who's a better rapper, Ghostface Killer, J.R. Ryder. And this is when Dipset is super popping. And uh, all due respect to J.R. Ryder, you know, right? I mean, of course. Ghostface is Ghostface. So um, I'm having arguments like that or like who's a better punchline rapper, <laughs> Chino XL or Lil Wayne at the time. Um, and so to know that I was able to build with people from across the city and I'm from a suburb. I'm going to interrupt myself frequently as things come up, just so you're aware. Uh, that's ADHD for you. So I grew up in a suburb of Chicago called River Forest. It's about five to 10 minutes outside the city, like literally down the street. And Chicago in and of itself is incredibly segregated by design. So there are banks that would only give loans to black families if the properties that they were looking to mortgage were in certain areas of the city. Um, they would also, you know, intentionally um, put for sale signs up on certain blocks when black families were going to move in as a signal to a lot of the white families on those blocks that it was time to get out of Dodge, which um, really created this sense of, you know, you have different people who live in different neighborhoods based on their race. And something like YCA, which gave us a dedicated space. Um, and there was a poetry slam called Louder Than a Bomb that's now called something else. Um, I believe Rooted and Radical is what it's called now. But it was a space for all of us to really be able to get together to build with each other to validate each other's interests and and understanding of the craft and also just you know when you're a kid right and and uh you know i know in the uk it's football and basketball over here it's mostly basketball right when you want to go outside and play with your friends you know you you are constantly competing against one another just because it's fun to do that and i think that's what we were doing in a lot of ciphers and at open mics and poetry slams and we were also very fortunate to have been mentored by people who are masters of the craft, people like Krista Franklin, who's also an incredible visual artist, Avery R. Young, um, Idris Goodwin, Felicia Rose Chavez. And we were meeting people like Willie Perdomo from New York, who was big at the New Yorican Poets Cafe, that Adam's family and a lot of underground New York hip hop came out of. And yeah, I think we were just lucky enough to be developing our understanding of the craft and our understanding of community at a time where we weren't really as distracted by the idea of making it because it was such an abstract concept to us. Mm. You know, Chicago at the time, especially for young people, the all of the hip hop open mics were 21 and over. The youth poetry open mics obviously were all ages. And Urban Sandbox was really the only open mic that was on a weeknight that was all ages, um, that wasn't geared specifically toward youth poets. So it was really a matter of finding one another and, you know, building really foundational relationships that still carry on to this day. So people like 
Green Slime and Solar Five, who are on the album for All Debts Public and Private, are they're people I've known for 15 years since I was a teenager, since I was in high school. And a lot of the friends that I made back then are still my friends. Those who are in a better position to take advantage of the you have to compete with us. Imitation's the lowest form of real love unless you put a meal up. Caught wreck, now let's build some. In a city where out of towners live for a couple years, hunting kids or local businesses they can steal from. I don't wait into what's deeper than rap. So let's keep this surface level and leave it at that. White bankers and politicians were dressing evil in maps. They seeded the math and still want to feed us the sap. So beef is a trap. You see the leeches it competes to attract. Nothing stylish or academic bottom, just a geek in a hat. Buzzards digging beaks in the rats, feasting the fat. Eating what the piggies want and then leave them the scraps. All our credit they rejected, we'll be needing it back. It took fever dreams and quarantine for me to relax. Any light I get, I'm throwing at your feet till it's matched. Let's clear the books, break even a stack. You mentioned the community, of course, back then. What was it about the art form? What was it about that period that worked for you as a fan? What was it that was inspiring you mm. artistically? Yo, punchline raps, for real. I mean, I think I think writing um, is a form of magic, right? Like real magic. Yeah. You can conjure a phrase or, you know, like a simile or a metaphor that elicits a visceral reaction in you when you hear it. And so the people that I was listening to and really studying were into that. So people like Chino XL, Razcast, Bach Hill, Quell of Typical Cats. I mean, all of them were rappers who relied on punchlines. I remember um, Bach Hill had that infamous bar that everybody wound up biting in rap battles 20 years later uh uh my hip-hop status is c-section because i'm a cut above you pussies i remember he's he's he said that in like 2003 classic and then every everybody kind of took it and ran with it um vakil also said some shit that's crazy he said uh the crown don't move anyone who intends on grabbing it is fighting off full-blown aids with flintstone tablets so like those were the those were the people I was really learning a lot from in addition to like mainstream rappers like Ludacris for sure and Twista and Jay-Z, Scarface, Beanie Siegel, Kanye back then, mm. Bay. So and you know, I was in my underground bag because I had been recording at my high school. They had a studio with like a I guess what at the time was a was a state of the art recording setup, which was pretty much just Pro Tools and a desktop Mac computer. But we were, I was recording with these kids who were really putting me on to a lot of music like Royce the Five Nine. They were putting me on to Company Flow and Doom, Mad Villain, and were really interested in uh, furthering my growth as well. So I was just kind of surrounded by, in a variety of different spaces, people who were into what I was into and we're validating that we were all kind of excited about the same music um you know my friends and i were as teenagers doing knowledge on people like big daddy kane and g rap and rock him and going back to each other and being like yo this is like the god particle of what we do 
you know, it's these, it's these three guys. Yeah. Um, and then that, you know, that kind of discovery phase of hip hop happening at the same time as all of us meeting one another was really, was really special. And I think just encouraged that consistent creativity that just never devolved, you know, it, it just kind of kept evolving and even if it unfolded in different ways. So for example, my man, Nate, uh, his, he started to really fully invest in his poetry and has since become very, very prominent in terms of being not only a, a published poet who's won fellowships that are worth a lot of money, but also as a poetry professor and a literature professor, you know, like the, I think we all are still creating in one way or another because that energy from back then has sustained us until now. And there have been moments where, I, I mean, obviously you get discouraged whenever you realize that what you love is not going to be able to support you financially. But I think we're always constantly searching for that feeling and reconnecting with one another to try to renew that energy. Does that discovery and energy we're talking about does that take you to the route of any other form of participation beyond rap you participate in any in any other form at that time nah man it was really it was really just rap and hip-hop music were my shit um you know i i admired breaking and graffiti writing uh when i was like really a little kid before i even started rapping i wanted to dj at first um and then of course that was cost prohibitive in the 90s 2000s my parents weren't about to buy me turntables <laughs> <laughs> um so you know uh i i was always enthralled with all of the elements of hip-hop culture yeah as i got older the idea that such a global force could have grown out of you know, a, a power outlet and a street light on the corners of Sedgwick and Cedar in the Bronx in 1973. Something that's gained resonance with me ever since then, mm -hmm. um, especially when you look at how many different countries and continents are involved with hip hop culture in, in very genuine ways. And um, yeah, I mean, it, it, I was always very into every element of the culture, but the only one that I ever practiced was emceeing got it well sticking to the subject of your humble beginnings you mentioned your parents a couple of minutes ago can you speak to the impact of your dad having a cultural confidence as a journalist and essentially passing that down to yourself as a writer what kind of impact did your dad have on you um my dad i mean was just somebody who considered himself a consumer of great art so I grew up in a house where there were paintings on the wall. We were being taken to the Art Institute of Chicago. We were taken to symphonies as a kid. All of this, of course, being, being part of an upbringing that was very privileged in a variety of ways, racially and financially. And my dad was also very honest with me about the world around me and what I was seeing and issues such as race were conversations that he was not scared to have with me as a kid growing up. And that shaped my worldview as well. And his music collection, you know, my father was just loved great music. So everything from 
Kid A by Radiohead, which was the first album I remember hearing in a car. And my dad was um, flipping through the different EQ settings because it was a new car and everything in its right place. The the baseline on that that comes in, it, it felt like the car was imploding in on itself. I still remember that to this day. It kind of scared me. Um, his love of film, his love of um, comedy as well. I think he, he just, he just is a consumer of all different kinds of great art. Mm. And I benefited from that. You know, I was listening to, I remember I always used to have a hard time going to sleep and my dad suggested to help me go to sleep. And this is when I'm a little kid listening to a smooth jazz station in Chicago called WNUA 95.5. And then that shaped my ear too. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Coltrane, a love Supreme. That was something else he introduced me to at a young age, which is still, in my opinion, the best album ever made and was just kind of a font of information about uh art <laughs> you know like he was having conversations with me about kurosawa before i was oh, old enough man. to even watch those movies and um you blessed in some you know in some ways i was i think that the double-edged sword of that um and i'm sure with a lot of a lot of people who grew up similarly is that there are other ways in which you're you're spoken to as an adult that are probably not healthy right okay so um you know your intellect is is respected and encouraged and nurtured and nourished and at the same time the other things that come with being a child and various stages of neurological development can become frustrating, especially when you're the oldest sibling as I was. So, um, you know, bear the brunt of those frustrations in some ways. So, um, but yeah, I mean, as far as, as far as my father is concerned and just as a writer, I think he was well-informed. He wrote for Metro Detroit magazine, for quite some time, he wrote a book about John DeLorean's foray into the cocaine business as a means to support his automotive company. He Interesting. eventually went on to write for and edit Chicago Magazine. And then um, later in life, he returned to writing books. He wrote a true crime book, a couple of true crime books. One is called When Corruption Was King, about a mob lawyer who was fixing cases for the outfit in Chicago. Another wow. was about, yeah, uh, um, another was about, and that lawyer then, you know, basically out of, I guess, a sudden crisis of conscience went to the FBI and uh, reported on the mob set up a sting. I think the first time that double jeopardy in the United States, which is that you can't be charged for a crime once you're acquitted of it in court. Um, it was the first time double jeopardy was ever overturned and somebody was retried for something they were acquitted of because it was a fixed case. So um, he wrote a book about that. He wrote a book about a guy named James Keene, who was a drug dealer from 
a city in central Illinois who was basically told by the FBI that he would have his sentence commuted if he went undercover in a mental hospital for the criminally insane in the Midwest and uh, tried to coerce a confession in the location of several missing bodies from a serial killer. So these were these were things that my dad was writing, and along the way, he was learning a lot of um, a lot of information, kind of adjacent to those stories. And he was always excited about sharing it with me. So I I definitely learned about that, and I also got my love of learning about things that I'm interested in wholeheartedly from my dad. So you know I'm. Uh, back when Billy Woods is dropping Tower Candy, I'm devouring every interview he's doing because because I'm inspired by his work and I want to learn everything about it. And I, I definitely got that from my father, too. to piggyback on the word you mentioned just a couple of moments ago you said the word intellect what was it that mm. leads you to becoming a teacher man so i mentioned earlier in the interview my mentor peter khan who like i said is retiring this year he taught a full-time spoken word poetry program where he would push into every freshman and sophomore English class in the high school for five day units at the end of which we would have three poems and we would have shared them, shared at least one of them with the class. Um, there was an after school program that had about 70 or 80 kids. And he was one of the first teachers who validated what I was interested in as far as hip hop was concerned and brought me into the fold of this community of people who are interested in similar things the club had about 70 or 80 kids in it. And one of the most foundational experiences I had as a fan and a practitioner at hip hop, I remember uh, it was my man Cedric who was, who really took me under his wing. He was a couple years older than me. And uh, this woman named Santana who was at the time kind of like one of the best rappers in the school she was a dope songwriter as well and they they did like a an, an impromptu cover of scenario by tribe in the hallway outside of the lecture hall where we used to we used to have our meetings after school and there was a kid named grant who was making the beat with uh his fist and a pen against a locker it was like some movie shit you know yeah it was like it was like something that you would expect to see in an after school movie um, and roll your eyes at like, this doesn't happen. <laughs> um, but not, nah, it happened in front of me. And right. I remember I went and I bought low end theory after that. And those times, uh, and those opportunities were really inspiring for me and, and made me feel worthwhile as a human being too, because I was a kid who just didn't, 
value himself or, um, you know, I didn't really have, I didn't really think my life carried any value. I kind of considered myself a burden to everybody who interacted with me. I was, uh, I was dealing with suicidal ideation, um, just shitty self-image and Peter Kahn made me feel like I was worth something. Right. Yeah, he made me feel like I was worth something, and uh, you know I wouldn't be here today without him. And I know a lot of people who can say the same thing. And so that was one element of it, because um, at that point I'd also started at YCA leading. Uh, I'd led like one workshop on storytelling, and the songs I used were Maxine by Ghostface and Raekwon. Mm. Uh, I'm playing tricks on me by the ghetto boys. And I think Peruvian cocaine by a mortal technique. Okay. The other one, which is That's interesting. Yeah. Which has aged a lot better than, uh, one would expect, but yeah, like just to, to be able to, um, have the opportunity. Oh, a children's story by the, the, uh, black star version of children's story. Nice. Nice. Going back to you talking about that being a pivotal album for yourself coming up as a hip hop fan. You said it earlier, of course. Yeah. How do you think you've been able to transfer experience, you know, aesthetics and cultural politics whilst keeping your ear to the street as well as the academy we're talking about? Mm. <laughs> That's an amazing question. Um, I don't know. I, th I think at a certain point, I stopped really giving a fuck about what was and was not acclaimed. And I just kind of used my ear to, to tune into the intention of the artist. And, you know, I had like my hip hop snob phase was through high school and a little bit into college. And then as I got older, I remember the, the artist who really changed that shit for me was Freddie Gibbs. So, the miseducation of Freddie Gibbs mixtape, specifically him rhyming over that big L flamboyant instrumental. It it really shifted my perspective as far as, you know, stylistically the things that I was interested in and, and validated. So from there, I, I really started getting back into a lot of the Wayne that I had kind of dismissed because I was an idiot kid <laughs> who was a hip hop purist. <laughs> um, you know, I, I like, I got into Jeezy. I got into some of, I was like big, I was living in Panama at the time. Uh, okay. and I was big into like, you go to a, the, when you go to a club with no real frame of reference for being in a club and you hear music in the club for the first time, it has an impact on you. So I remember hearing a lot of like electronic club music and being into what Dizzy Rascal was doing at the time with, I think it was Armand Van Helden, um, that uh, Bonkers song that he did. I remember really rocking with that. That's right. Yeah. Armand Van Helden. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. So there's like a lot of, there's a lot of stuff that um, I wound up, it, it, you know, I just kind of have, kept an open mind and then I always ask my students what they're listening to and even if it's not stuff that I'm returning to on a regular basis still have an appreciation for it I mean where I'm teaching now 
in Chicago is not far from where G Herbo grew up. And uh, Herb is a, a legend in that part of the city. And a lot of a lot of the kids who a lot of the kids who um, I teach have been putting me on. So a lot of the young drill rappers from all over the city, from um, suburbs of Chicago as well. And there's so much talent in that genre that is dismissed because of the label of it. And there are other reasons that are deeper than rap that I don't want to get into that um, cause people to, to dislike the music. And I understand it. Uh, but there are a lot of really talented guys from Chicago who are drill rappers who uh, my students are into. I mean, I, I think Lil Baby is incredible. Um, I think at the top of his game can rhyme with the best of them. I think the feature he had on that Drake song, Wants and Needs, is proof of that. Um, I like Thug. I like Future. Um, yeah, I just, I you know, Draco, the ruler, rest in peace. Mm. I, I'm, I'm Nipsey Hussle, rest in peace. Like, I, I've just kind of kept an open ear to music and um, tried not to view it through a lens of like snobbery. You know, yeah, yeah. I've just tried to accept it for what it is. And if it's not for me, it's not for me. But right. Um, if I enjoy it, I'm going to revisit it and uh, try to learn something from it, too. So that's that's why. You've come a long way from those days of snobbery you just spoke of. <laughs> You've come a long way as an artist. I want to dive straight into this new album, knowing how dense of a project this is. What was the starting point going into For All Depths, Public and Private? This is your first album with closed sessions and your third project in less than two years. It's produced entirely by right. Boathouse. When does, when does this journey mm. begin? Man, uh, I think it would probably begin with my first hearing of Boathouse in like the early, I feel like 2011, 2012. He was working with a rapper named Lord of the Fly, who now goes by Groupthink. And Groupthink was a part of a scholarship program that I was also a part of that um, was called that's called First Wave. And I was in the first cohort of the scholarship program, but basically it was like a hundred forty-five thousand dollar scholarship, four years tuition um, for rappers and poets. You know, you go to university, study whatever you want, um, but you don't have to worry about paying tuition for four years. And he was in uh, Crash Prez was also in that co was also not in that cohort was in that program. Uh, who's he's somebody who's a frequent collaborator. Um, there's a person in my cohort named Dinesh Smith, who's a very prominent poet, and they're they're just yeah, absolutely brilliant writer. Anyway, so. I met Boathouse through Lord of the Fly, now known as Groupthink. And then I, I was just kind of tapped into what he was doing as a producer from there because it was kind of like a lot of the ambient stuff that I had started developing an appreciation of with like a lot of the 808 drum kits that I'd started appreciating too. It was just kind of the perfect marriage of a lot of burgeoning interests for me sonically. And 
yeah, I, I can't really recall the day that we met, um, but I know that we got along very well, very quickly, and and we stayed in touch. And you know, I I gotten a million beats from him. I was like hounding him for beats. I was hounding Groupthink for. <laughs> I think I got. I think I was able to. I, I don't feel good about saying this, uh, but I bullied Groupthink into giving me a beat that he'd gotten from Boathouse. And <laughs> yeah, we just stayed in touch and, you know, had always intended. I mean, we, we'd made a few songs together over the years that um, hadn't really come out, but I'd recorded with him and uh, he'd started interning for Alex at Closed Sessions. Shout out to RTC. Mm. And... Um, I'd actually sat down and had a meeting with RTC back in 2014, 2015, and Boathouse was there. And I'd sent RTC a bunch of music that hadn't been released yet, and he was into it. And we had been talking about my potentially signing with closed sessions at that time. And then for a variety of reasons, um, 99.9% of it being I just wasn't ready for that kind of opportunity, it it didn't happen. So, but we stayed in touch. I was always sending him unreleased music, new stuff. He kept asking for it. He was interested in it. And then I would say kind of this run I've been on the past few years, starting with the uh, mixtape is God Intended, which RTC premiered on Ruby Hornet. Um, there were conversations that started happening and blossomed and then um around early 2021 boathouse had hit me and said hey you know uh alex thinks it's a good idea and i do too for us to do a project together and he sent me a pack of beats and it kind of built from there and initially it was only going to be like a five song ep but you know that's there's that old adage in basketball that uh you know make them until you miss them and right. everything that we were making everything that we were making was fire so i just wanted to go until we had a finished product that i was proud of and that boat was proud of and alex was proud to put out and that's how it got made hey yeah all right Hey, uh, Boathouse. Last week pulled a dozen racks out the mailbox For everyone who hopped bail and turned hell bop Ride comments to heaven for 575 Work the mortar and pestle, apply pressure and grind They got a vibe I only describe as post sound While my music's bumped like an elbow in the coach out Shown round the house I built, they touch nothing Cause they hands need palm olive bottles and scrub brushes Slipping off the grid, playing in low key Descending to demigods the hammer chose me, brought my ties to the finish line, even OT. Whole sheets of gold leaf hit the flow's feet. What up, Kip? Brought the rain to Cleveland like Sean Kemp. Got him slamming 40s off rip. Ceiling getting smaller, standing taller till it's. Well, he's clearly elevated you to challenge yourself and bring out something in you that we haven't heard before. How do you think those earlier sessions with Boathouse defined and developed your style for what would become this album? I mean. I knew going into the recording that I had to do something that was going to merit the look that was going to come with putting a 
the project out on closed sessions. You know, they've worked with people like Jamila Woods and Femdot and, um, you know, uh, just a variety of, of very well-known artists. And that's not to mention they've done one-off projects with Currency and Action Bronson and Evidence and Blue. So I knew I had to bring something to what we were going to do. And I think it was just the the comfort level with both being able to talk to him about the direction I wanted to take things in. I, I, I wanted, I wanted this album to feel like the blueprint by Jay-Z mm. where the rapping was super on point, but also the song structures and the songwriting meant that you remembered the songs and, and wanted to keep coming back to them. And the writing was layered enough to where, or the rhyming was layered enough to where you were able to appreciate it on a surface level. But if you were listening on a deeper level, you could pull something away from it um, every time you return to it. And yeah, I think Boat just kind of rolled with that direction. And it's it's very easy. I mean, I love collaborating with other artists, whether they're producers or rappers. I leave my ego at the door and... I have a totally open mind in the creative process and it tends to allow for some really great music to be made. And I think that's what happened here and is a major reason why there's been as much appreciation for it as there has been, which all of which I'm grateful for. Absolutely. Well, let's talk more towards that process and creative development. Developing as an artist, what would have been some of the earliest techniques you fostered as a way to maintain this focus and, and get these best results? This is obviously some of your sharpest and most composed work yet. How do you think you've grown well, over the past 15 years recording in terms of, you know, imitation, emulation and innovation? I mean, I learned how to count bars. <laughs> <laughs> like that was... I think that was like one of the one of the uh one of the most informative things that I learned was learning how to count bars. Uh I learned that from shouts out to Rafael Casal, who was in a film called Blind Spotting, which is now I think a television show on stars. That's right. But but David he's Diggs. the one who Yeah, with David Diggs. Um and Rafael was the person who taught me how to count bars. That's incredible. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he was a part of that scholarship program as well as like a, a mentor figure. Um, and he's always just been a very solid stand up person who's um, still made space for me, even in, in kind of like my dickheadedness in a, in a variety of different contexts that he's had to contend with. Uh, but he's always looked out for me and, and big me up, which I appreciate. Um, but learning how to count bars was one thing. I would say uh, another thing was figuring out how to write hooks that were not just four to eight bar verses <laughs> that I repeated. Um, another thing that helped was definitely having the opportunity to perform more often and and learning what resonated with the crowd. Um, listening to, as I said before, a bunch of music that I might have been dismissive of so that I could learn different things from it. Um, looking at recording as a process that could be editorial in the same way that writing could be. So 
once I learned how to compress vocals on my home studio setup, I would walk around with the roughs and listen and be able to know, you know, like, okay, cool. This is this a syllable could be cut here or a syllable could be moved over. I could drag a syllable because sonically it works a little bit better. And, you know, really just taking the same kind of approach to the recording process as I would to my writing process. And I think a lot of the music really benefited from that. And also just like a lot of experiences where I was humbled and reminded that I wasn't as good as I thought I was. So uh, I remember there was, uh, uh, when I came back from Panama or, or when I was home from Panama, like I remember the first time I heard Vic Mensa, the straight up EP and he was like 17 or 18, just rapping his ass off. Mm. And I called my man, Nate, and I was like, well, we had a good run. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, if this is when 16 and 17 year olds are rapping like now, I think, you know, it's in good hands. We, we did what we could. <laughs> and, uh, Let's it, pass we're the cooked. Yeah, we're, co we're cooked. <laughs> um, and so like, I, I think, uh, you know, that forced me to step my game up. I think coming back from college or university during summers and, and going to the lyricist loft open mics at the Harold Washington Library in downtown Chicago and seeing an open mic list full of the people who would wind up being associated with Chicago hip hop forever. People like Chance the Rapper, Vic Mensa, No Name, Jean Doe, Mick Jenkins, Lucky, uh, Saba and Pivot Gang, seeing all of them perform was really important because then um, I also had an understanding that like I couldn't just do my straight ahead rap shit anymore because these kids are all like if I'm Wolverine, they're X twenty three. Right, right. You know they have that they have the same skill set I do plus a whole bunch of other shit that they've picked up just as young kids who are sponges and tapped into what's popping. You're talking about heavyweights. Um, yeah. Yeah, man. Yeah. And uh, I was very, very fortunate to be able to, to um, see that phase of things. Uh, you know, I was, I, I, I also had to get out of my own way. I was bitter as fuck that uh, I've been putting out music since I was in high school. And there are people from the city who weren't really rocking with it, but were rocking with music that was being made by younger people, which, you know, was was me being arrogant and uh, resentful because for about shit that I felt entitled to and hadn't even worked like 10% as hard as they did to attain. Um, so, yeah, I think I think I had to learn from that as well. Like, you know, checking your ego doesn't just look like people coming up to you saying you're dope and you saying thank you to them. It also looks like, okay, cool. If you got to go back to the drawing board because what's being made is head and shoulders above what you've been doing. Um, then you have to always be open to learning and applying what you're learning to your music in real time. Cause if, if you expect to be able to keep doing the same thing and expecting different results, you know, as the saying goes, that's its own form of insanity. So I think all of those things kind of contributed to my technical development and understanding of the craft.
Well, you have a practice that seems to be fueled by not having a specific process as a way to bring into focus the most present version of your creative self. Would you agree with that? I would. I would. Um, and I just, you know, I, I just try to, I think the other thing too is just, you know, just trying to come up with one to two bars a day as grounds to be able to build music around too. That's part of it as well. It's a very personal album. You make several clear points on this album that there's a correlation between the way people perceive growth and the way people receive growth. I was wondering mm. if you could speak more candidly to that period and how much your artistry over the past couple of years has been a case of survival skills as much as a form mm. of therapy coping with alcoholism. Mm. Um, damn. I mean, I, I wasn't, I'll put it like this. I, I've never identified as an alcoholic. I've never attended Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. Um, but it was very clear at a certain point in time over the past four or five years that my consumption of alcohol was not out of control quite yet, but was getting there and that it was affecting my relationships with uh, my then girlfriend, now wife. It was affecting my ability to sleep at night. It was affecting me physically, just wearing me down. Um, and I had anger management issues as a kid and those started to come back with my use of alcohol and you know, I, I can't say that, I can't say that uh, I've quit consuming it completely. I've significantly cut back on it. Mm -hmm. And um, I think I'm at the point in my life where it's like, you know, the stakes are way too high. I have a daughter. I have, uh, I just was hired to take over for my mentor um, at that job since he's retiring and congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. It's a, it's definitely um, it's, it, it's definitely something that's uh, that's a responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I don't live, I'm not at a far remove from the community of people that I work with. So like, you know, I can't I, I can't run the risk that um, there are going to be kids seeing me buy, you know, even if I am old enough to buy it, like fits a Hennessy at the grocery store, like it just and then I'm in I'm in school on Monday and uh, playing the role of playing a role model. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, well, speaking of yourself being a role model listening to this album mm -hmm. there's a through line between your role as an artist and a teacher in terms of rejecting mm. lessons as much as you're perfecting lessons what mm. did you have to reject as a way to perfect putting together this album and what are some of the lessons you've learned working with boathouse i mean the lessons i've learned working with boathouse is just you know trust the process and and trust that you're you're when you're working with somebody else that as long as the goal is the same regarding the final products 
any input that they give you is just going to go toward making what you've made even better, even if you think it's at its best as is. So what I learned from Boat is just how to keep pushing that final product and also just how to have fun in the studio, how to be able to listen to what it is you're doing and not be too precious about the process. Yeah. Um, I, I have I have a lot of respect for people who are able to do everything that they do in one take. But for me, I had to let go of that idea. And, you know, certain I'd I punch in at certain moments uh, in the recording process just because it sounded a lot better. I didn't sound winded. I, I didn't sound my breath control didn't sound sloppy. And um, yeah, I mean, that was part of it, too, is just kind of learning how to trust, as instincts. I said before. Yeah, trust my instincts and really leave my ego at the door. And then uh, as far as what I had to reject, I mean, I had to reject the idea that um, I had anything to prove to anybody. I think my resume speaks for itself in a lot of regards, both in terms of creativity and in terms of experience and uh, what I've been able to do as an artist in in, uh, the city and elsewhere for a long time. And so... I, I had to reject the idea that I had anything to prove to anybody and just kind of step into my most fully formed self and own the shit that I'm good at. Yeah. Look, my no hands turning money to water. water. The high priest of credit pouring my blood on the altar. Run way out my wallet, then cleared another departure. Interrupt their arguments, mother shushing my father. Thought I was making more than living check to check, but that is debt. At the gas pump and praying I didn't spend the rest. My signature and etch a sketch, it was shaking down. Scrambled a couple leaks with putty before the razor ground. Strict diet, suspending limits and budget cuts. Skipped the meal when I was broke, now I can't stomach lunch. I've seen people I love burn to a blooded husk. Their will is always tested, but they never study much. Dollars late. Years short, apocalypse is spheroid Veered off in the dark corners where the tears cost Escape was just the price of what the beer cost Now I'm responsive, asking what I'm here for Was I living or surviving? Shuffled through the days, pretending that I was trying Moved through the cold while my mood hit the lows Mind on my money, I was losing them both Was I living or surviving? Shuffled through the days, pretending that I was trying Moved through the cold You write a lot of this album right on the cost of a living crisis during a pivotal period for everybody on the planet. A crazy time you're writing this album. What kind of transition mm-hmm. are you going through yourself as a new dad? And how do you think this mm-hmm. body of work holds a mirror to your intentions as a dad yourself in terms of <laughs> leading and learning? Mm. I mean, I was, uh, yo, just being shitty with money. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like I think, I think that's just. I think it happens the, like I think, that. Oh my God! Um, hey, my no hands turning money to water is like, <laughs> if if I ever write a memoir, that's gonna be the title. <laughs> just there it is. Yeah, like just no matter and and even a lot of the stuff I was saying in there was just super real. You know, I mm. thought I even I remember. 10 years ago, um, working in an informal educational 
space making like $20,000 a year before taxes as an independent contractor because the organization I was working for then would not have to like cover all of the additional expenses that came with paying me for full-time employment. And um, still living that way till now with a kid and a, a wife and, um, you know, a bunch of additional responsibilities financially, it's just not sustainable. And I think I wrote that song as a note to self. It it was the song, believe it or not, that I was probably the most, QTNA is the song I'm referring to. Right. It was, uh, it was the song that I was most reluctant to put on the album. There was just something about it that uh, didn't feel right to me initially. And Alex and Boat had to talk me into including it. And I'm glad that they did because it resonated with a lot of people. And, uh, you know, I think that, that that's the the main thing I'm learning how to do is is I'm in my early 30s. So really trying to find the last bits of immaturity that could be really detrimental to my well-being and the well-being of my loved ones and just trying to eliminate that from my life. Um, and one of the consistent ones has been my mismanagement of money and a song like QTNA that references that is a pretty good reminder that, um, you know, no matter how much I grow up or how much my circumstances change, there are going to be some things that need to change with those circumstances if uh, I want to live a significantly less stress-filled life. And, you know, to, to talk about cost of living, I mean, I, I was actually just on a shout out to Andy C from B-Boy Document. I was uh, speaking to him earlier today and he was mentioning how cost of living has increased in the United Kingdom. And, Massively. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the and one of the things that I'd read on the Internet recently was that. Um, it was something like if you want to live the same lifestyle you lived last year in 2022, you need to make $5,000 more. And when I think about how, how large of a sum of money that is, even if you spread it out over 12 months, and when you consider a lot of the big picture stuff, like what's being referred to as inflation, that's really price gouging by greedy corporations and, um, I, I, you know, it's, it's, I don't know. It's, it's frustrating to think about the big picture stuff. Mm. Um, but those are problems that, you know, I can think about and take into consideration and build with other people on how to manage on a small scale, but I got to be able to take care of myself and my family first. Of so course. if I'm not mature about how I manage my own money, then I don't really have any right to tell anybody else how to manage their own and um i've got to figure out how to make that additional five thousand dollars in order to maintain um and not everybody has yeah and not everybody else has that opportunity or, or the access to the resources that would allow them to do that so 
Um, I'm very fortunate in a lot of ways. And uh, I think that conversations like that are ones that need to continue to be had because like I was just saying, I, I mean, and I know that this is the same in the UK, but the, the distribution of wealth in the United States is so crazy uneven um, that when you see things like the price of gas rising $2 a gallon, or um, you see things like baby formula shortages right after the Supreme Court has made it okay for state for any state to ban abortion whenever they want to. Um, mm. You know, all of those, I, I try to, what I try to do as an artist is to take all of those big picture things into consideration and find a way to then make them maybe a little bit easier for listeners to understand and reckon with. Cause that's what I'm trying to do constantly. And, uh, it's hard, man. It's hard. It is. It is. What about yourself being a father and being an artist? What kind of role do you think researching your daughter's future has had on you researching your own life as a way to challenge yourself and attack these concepts on this album? There's a lot of dense concepts on this project we're going to talk about and navigate. Just wondering what kind of impact your daughter's future has had on you navigating these topics on this album. Man, you know... Um... I think yeah you know, i'm I'm stuck that's an incredible question um, um I think thinking a lot about my daughter's future is terrifying when I consider the state of the world, and so a lot of what I've been doing is trying my best to remain present and enjoy the time that I spend with her. And to to try to think about how I can keep her happy. I'm not going to be able to protect her from everything, and, and which is one of like the the more daunting epiphanies you get when you're raising a kid. Um, but it's it's difficult for me to think about her future uh, because the world is a scary place. And it feels very much like things are going to get worse before they get better. But I need to make sure that I'm safeguarding my daughter's joy for as long as possible. She's going to come to those realizations as well. She's already smart, inquisitive. She can't talk, but she's still inquisitive. Um, and, uh, you know, um, I think that that's the the most difficult thing is like just kind of stealing myself for those moments when uh, the naivete falls away, and what am I going to do to be able to to give her the the necessary tools for her to find peace of mind and uh, an important sense of self while the world is in a state of decline, you know. <sighs> Boathouse. 
Yeah. They grow bigger names while you lean toward them breathless. Like they don't hit the stage and y'all don't ease toward the exits. Mouth full of salt, trying to feed off successes. Cause the only allergy that makes them breathe hard is effort. Every other answer is, are we off the record? I'm spelling names out so you could recall them better. Throw a sheet on the stretcher and some dogs on the grill. Watching them transform, being wrong in the skill. They as sharp as an eel or the cone that you snap round the collar of a dog. Is it heels, ninja stars, and they mills? If they abroad with the pills, they brought Tylenol bottles, little hearts on the seals. Ran free in my raps, I should charge them for real. Putting palms to the jaws, every song that I spill. They lost in the sauce while I saute the field. They the core, we the pill. They the wall, we the drill. I wanted to talk about some of the collaborations on this project because there's a lot of dope ones on here, of course. You yep. strike me, first and foremost, I just want to say that you strike me as an artist who strives to be as privy as possible to everything your collaborators have done as possible. Do you ever feel mm. that your responsibility to create work that sits next to their best material, do you ever feel that competes with your own mental health? Nah, it used to, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but I think I, I don't even think it had to do with the quality of the work as much as it had to do with the stature of the people I was working with. Right. Um, but no, nah, I mean, I'm everybody who I work with on this album are, are people who I have a lot of respect for, people who I wanted to work with. Or, you know, in the case of like Woods and Slime and Solar Five or people who I've I have like close relationships with relatively. Um People like Elucid, who I think is like one of the best rappers alive, and Mother Nature, who's, I mean, come on, man, like Mother Nature. If if you want to learn how to rap better in terms of your cadences and pockets, just study Mother Nature because they got all that shit figured out. Yeah. <laughs> they cracked the code on that. So, yeah. yeah, nah, it's not it's not intimidating to the extent where it wears on my mental health. Um, it definitely used to, but I think that had more to do with the stature of the people I was rhyming with than it did their abilities. And, you know, I, I like being out rapped. I mean, Kip Stone shit on there. I remember getting that back and that wasn't like a mental health moment, but that was definitely a moment where I was like, fuck, man. Like, <laughs> you got me. I was trying to I was trying to bargain with Boat and Alex be like, yo, extend the beat 16 more bars because I can't go out like that. And then... <laughs> I just realized for the sake of the song, it was it was probably right to just leave it as is. And I like my verse and I could be OK with taking the L on that, uh, considering what he brought to the table musically and how he enhanced the the sound of the song. How do you combat those nerves when you're collaborating and you are feeling intimidated when you are feeling, you know, you got to bring your A game how, do you, how are you combating those nerves and that anxiety as a way to become the best version of yourselves? I heard that you watch films to become inspired. Is that right? Yeah, that's part of it. I think to to break writer's block, which is something that I learned from a friend of mine who's a poet or uh, somebody who I, I was friendly with a while back who's a poet, um, who mentioned that as a technique. And and then, you know, a lot of a lot of my stuff that I wrote and gravitated well not the stuff i wrote but the stuff i gravitated toward musically uh cinematically and um and and literature i enjoyed reading 
was kind of rooted in like a lot of the noir stuff dope that i was watching as a kid like batman the animated series uh still like in my opinion the greatest cartoon ever made um so like stuff like that i think um definitely helps with the nerves i think the other thing too is just you know like i gotta just start writing you know i just gotta i just gotta put that first bar down and if it takes me writing like 16 bars worth of trash to get to the gyms i'll do it so that's the other thing excuse me about my process that's changed as well is the idea that like you know um that uh I am a vessel for creativity and that means that I'm a vessel for both good and bad ideas. And so if I have to get a lot of bad ideas down on the page before I get to the good ones, it's okay. Cause not everything is for everybody to hear. It's part of the process. Yeah. And so that makes things a little less intimidating too, for sure. Nice. Nice. Going back to films, do you ever recommend any viewing for the producers you work with as a way to tap into, you know, specific textures and evoke a specific atmosphere? Uh, I do not. But, you know, what's crazy is when I was working with August Fanon on We Dress the City with Our Names and I mentioned Star Wars, he was recommending, like, he shared a whole folder of films for me to check out. Oh, shit. What he did just you recommend? Kinda, yeah. Uh, Lehen, I think was the, was the one I know Classic. it's a French. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He recommended that. I still need to watch it. Um, and the TV show, Dr. Katz, he recommended that for me as well. So, Interesting. um, yeah, but yeah, nah, I just like hitting people and, um, you know, trying to, uh, get recommendations musically. Um, but I need to do a better job of reaching out to people like shout out to my man, Dylan Green, Cinema Sai, who has the Real Notes podcast. Uh, I got to hit him soon and get a list of films that I got to check out because I'm getting to that point where the well is kind of running dry as far as the writing is concerned. And the intimidation factor is setting in just because I've agreed to all of these different projects. And uh, I'm working with a lot of amazing producers and MCs and um, you know, being overwhelmed by the amount of work that I need to do and the level of, uh, the, the level of excellence that I feel like I've set for myself, being able to maintain that, that's the shit that's intimidating. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I have just kind of, I think I need to hit somebody up. Maybe I could get Fanon to share a like a dozen movies in Google Drive with me or something. <laughs> <laughs> Make it happen, man. What have you learned about structure right. from being a cinephile and enjoying films as much as you do? Uh, I, I you know, I, cinephile, I think is a strong word. I, okay. I, I feel like, uh, I feel like, uh, I don't want to disrespect people who are actual cinephiles. <laughs> you know what I mean, uh, I just, I, I just like movies. I think, um, I think, because Something your music's cinematic. Not to cut you short, your Word. music is cinematic, which is why I asked the question. That's love. Uh, yeah, I mean, just like you know, I, I think, think for me, it's like what are what are what are the actions in in a story? Um, what if I'm telling a story in the music? Um, the story doesn't have to be linear, and the story also does not always have to be, or the the images that I'm presenting 
um, or the scenes that I'm setting, they don't have to always be like action packed. Not everything has to be a Michael Bay film. You know, every now and every now and then you could do you could do like the Barry Jenkins thing. You know, movies like Moonlight and If Beale Street Could Talk or movies that um are beautiful mm. but not necessarily explosive in the same way that a an action movie would be or um even some more of like the award garnering dramatic movies are mm. just kind of small slices of life um where you're allowed to see a very beautiful depiction of reality that you may not have lived yourself and then it causes you to then think about moments in time in your own life where uh you might not have lived through the same experiences but the emotions that those films evoke remind you of those times and right. make you want to write about them Which so i think in terms huh yeah yeah for real and and also just like the three-act structure of films um the prestige by Christopher Nolan was like when I cracked the code on that shit where, you know, a magic trick has three acts just like a film script does. And so I think that also helped my understanding of structure too. And I tried to transfer that over to the music. Dope, dope. Well, Bubble Coat is a movie. What was the energy and making behind that track and how did that come together? I mean... How do you not, how do you hear that beat and not think of Ray and Ghost? <laughs> you <laughs> exactly. know what I mean? Like, and see, and see the title, because the beat is called Bubble Coat, too. So, like, I see that, I hear that beat, and it's like, damn, this is the, this is like some Ray and Ghost shit. And, uh, you know, I, I think that was uh, something that also brought about, like, I just wanted to kind of convey those images, you know? Like, I think that's something Ghost and Ray are excellent at. You know, you'll have a 16-bar verse from them in every bar. Shit, on a half bar, you might be cutting to an entirely different story or a plot twist element of the narrative that wasn't there before. And, you know, yeah. I think that I think that beat made me think of that and want to do that. So I'm remembering myself in the ciphers when I was a kid. Midwest dress code, he's coast cadence dripping from the rhyme hands flex with the pocket switch like mm. you know you watch your watch your hands like keeping a certain time and then i'm doing it right now like the rap hands keep a certain time and then mm. all of a sudden like <laughs> you know you switch flows and then your gesturing switches with it um you know and uh you know a bar that follows that one aim like my last name should end in akavik that's like the kind of punchline that you kick in a cipher to make that shit blow up. Um, right. So yeah, I mean that that's definitely a part of it too. Just and I and I think that that's part of when I when I listen to beats um, and sit down to start writing. A lot of it is me trying to communicate the images in my head onto that paper. You're establishing sequences and so and sorts, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, definitely. How does Rossi with Armand Hammer come about? Woo! Crazy. Look, look, yo, that's the best song I've ever written. My personal opinion, I think that's the best song I've ever written. Just from the verse, the verses, the hook, um, <laughs> the features, mm. which, like, God damn, man. Woods and Elusive 
they they always know how to bring some shit to the track that that's just like uh, I have you stuck. And so like a verse, you want to talk about cinematic, a verse like Woods where he's talking about he, the verse opens with him being in a being around people in the studio. I know I haven't answered your question yet, but I, I promise I'm coming back to it. Uh, uh, you know, where he opens the verse being surrounded by people in the studio and people he's kicking it with. And then the verse ends with him, you know, right. listening to demos on the phone alone. Um, a verse like Elusive's where he just like, came through and just smashed shit, kicked over buildings. Um, it's just a, it's, it was a song that felt good to make. The hook came to me first and then I went back and I wrote the verses and yeah, it was just, it's just a song that feels good, man. It's a song that feels really, really good to listen to, to felt good to make it. Um, and it felt good to have two of my favorite rappers on there too. Ah, uh, hey, <laughs> Yeah. Scum up. <laughs> yeah. Sign of the cross over cognac caps. Photo array of ghosts like a Kodak map. We tapped the seal before we broke it. And some of the homies with double fist and immotable and coronas. Our chief concern was hating being sober. Couldn't smell the morning for the Folgers. Shoulders slumping out of sockets like a wooden toy soldiers. Leaping out my body, I'm flying by on the poster. More flashes of brilliance than Jordan's rookie year choker. Why they break when they bond is tested like Red Rover. They can't touch the table where we sit and bring a coaster. Cause they took the left of a square like Air Mosa. Logan's weapon X descended crowd get to work. I'm my biggest competition, whether project or verse. Battling myself, I'm trying to finesse a purse. Inspecting every rhyme, it's the science of wrecking earth. Dreams of Asti Spumanti, sipping Carlo Rossi. Throwing in on bottles of yellow tea. With the posse, nights getting foggy, the years piling on me. Waiting for the day I look back on them fond dreams of Asti Spumanti, sipping Carlo Rossi. Throwing in on bottles of yellow tail with the posse. Nights getting foggy, the years piling on me. Waiting for the day I look back on I mean, you know what's crazy is is Woods, uh, like. Woods and I, I probably do not have as close of a relationship as he would have with a lot of other artists on the label. Um, just by dint of like, I'm here, he's in New York, I think also there's like an age difference there as well. And I'm also always intimidated to talk to him because I'm like, damn, like, is what I'm gonna say interesting to this man? You know, he's kind of like the Dos Equis man. He's the most interested man in the world is what I'm gonna say uh gonna live up to what it is that he's experienced or whatever just on some like you know inner child shit um but i mean he in the process of making trap door with messiah music there were a lot of songs that wouldn't have made that album had he not pushed for them to go on there or there are a lot of songs that like you know would have been on that that album wouldn't have been what it wound up being had woods not listened to like the best of the newer shit for that album because there were like probably eight or nine songs that were made in the three or four months leading up to the release right. um that i'd made kind of in addition to the original 12 or 13 that i'd intended to be on the album so he he just kind of pushed me to make an a and a plus 
uh, in terms of business considerations as well, um, causing me to like, you know, really be patient with the whole process of rolling the album out, not rushing things so that it was coming on the heels of something else that I was still promoting. And which is, you know, ultimately, I think it worked out. I think Trapdoor had a, a bigger impact than either one of us realized. Um, mm. But, you know, the thing that I, th I think pushes me as far as writing and rapping about Woods is the example that he sets as a writer and a rapper. Because, I mean, I he was he's one of those artists I listened to, like, and the first time I heard him, I said to myself, this shit is different. Mm. And there was a there was a part of me that connected with it in a way that was really special and unique probably because of the the references in it um but then also just like you know hearing somebody who sees things the way that i do or or challenges the way that i see things and and causes me to kind of shift my perspective with it i think that kind of music is very special so i would say that those are the different ways in which woods has pushed me as a writer and a rapper too um indirectly do you think there's a spiritual side of what you do that comes along with the technical and musical side that people overlook and might not see from the outside looking in? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I grew up a Jewish kid, <laughs> you know, in a, in a conservative Jewish uh, sect in the Midwest. And I had a father who was, who was big on bigger on uh, the culture of Judaism historically than he was on uh, the culture of Judaism religiously. And I think what comes with a lot of Jewish culture, like a lot of mythology and folklore is the faith that there's going to be, there's a purpose for everything and that um, you're always going to have to make a way whether or not divine intervention is present. So I think that, that there definitely is a spirituality to what it is I make. Um, and, and in another way, just, you know, a lot of, of faith in humanity as well. Um, you know, I'm, I'm constantly looking for the good in other people. And for as much as I talk about the world um, and the ways in which it can be wicked, I think the other thing things that I'm trying to explore in some of the music that I've been working on are things that I'm grateful for in humanity and um, from the people who from people who I care about who have nurtured me as well going on if you are still listening to this episode and enjoying a podcast why not become a patron of fly fidelity at patreon.com slash fly fidelity becoming a patron means you are directly supporting our show and helping us to create a new episode each and every week it also means that as a thank you for being a super supporter you'll be able to access exclusive content to you including patron updates offers and discounts a monthly secret podcast early access and so much more
What kind of space has For All Depths given you to think about your relationship with hip hop, both during and post creation? Uh, I think during it was about really making a mark in terms of my reputation and trying to stamp my career and, uh, you know, like establish that I feel like I've, I've earned the right to be able to talk my shit in certain ways as a rapper. Um, and then post-creation, I, I, you know, I'm just grateful that people listen. I've been really, really humbled to see so many people around the world tuning into what it is I do, because when I first started making this uh, music, it, it wasn't for anybody else but me. And I was a kid in the suburbs of Chicago, 10, 11 years old, who really loved rap music and just felt like making it because it was fun. And then it became a necessity for my mental health in order to create. And then um, to know that there are people who appreciate it in countries I've never visited or people who relate to it makes the process of being an independent artist in hip hop a lot less lonely and um, just causes me to be appreciative of everything I've been allowed to do within hip hop. Cause I'm a white rapper. I, I, I am a guest in a house that black and brown people have built. Yeah. And I've been allowed to do some pretty incredible things within that space. So really, um, also just kind of taking the time to be grateful that people are tuning in and, and that people continue to give me opportunities and space to do what it is I do. Got my name on blast, like ankle monitors over low socks. There's holes water like Highlanders on the stovetop. Played the game and barely got it locked like props. Oh, the numbers never drop. All good if my stock's slow. Debut older than my students, schooling mentors. Since a teenager, never waited on their 10 4 Superhuman heat vision, chewing through a lead wall. From inside gardens, they eating gatekeepers fenced off. How they shed more sense than fear. Don't want to pay dues and still lose once the checks are clear. Want to work on some heat? Hit me in 2023. But I'ma be honest, expect an expensive year Only gonna travel as far as my commute will take me Unless you paying what could change life for my wife and baby Soon as I stopped complaining, I started serving the customers Steep hills and stats at my feet, watch me run them up We were hermits in a barrel full of crabs Now it's too much bread for us to battle for some cash The target's not a rapper, it's the bag The target's not a rapper, it's the bag we were hermits in a barrel full of crabs Now it's too much bread for us to battle for some cash The target's not a rapper, it's the bag I wish I could show my appreciation for this podcast. I wish I could respond to it somehow or be notified in the future when Fly, Fidelity, updates, because it's so great. But I don't think there's a way I can do any of those things. Uh-oh. You're wrong. <laughs> Subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud and never miss an episode. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. My people thought you whipped me where you were.